Father in heaven, we thank you for ASI. We thank you for men and women who have answered your call to serve. We thank you for Jesus who has called us to serve. And we pray that the Holy Spirit may speak to hearts and minds today, that you may well make up my limitation for my limitations and deficiencies, and that you may speak to our hearts. I pray, Father, that you may change my own plans as necessary according to the needs that each of us have and the needs that we have to see you more clearly. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's begin with a simple question. What does rain do? It waters the earth, right? It brings uh, moisture to the earth that is badly needed. It's a, a very basic element of our ecosystem, absolutely basic, right? Fundamental. And uh, when you go to Scripture, uh, we'll just appeal to a couple of texts and see if the Scripture helps us with the definition, the scriptural definition of that. The rain comes down and does not return there, but waters the earth and makes it bring forth and, sp- uh, and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. You know that text, well, Isaiah 55 or Deuteronomy 11, then I will give you the rain for your land and its season and the rain in the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain and your new wine. These are simply representatives of many texts in the Bible that speak about how God uses the terminology of rain. So rain causes life and growth. Rain originates with God. And rain, according to Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, um, there is such a thing as an early rain and as a latter rain or former rain and a latter rain, okay? So rain needs, however, when we speak biblically, we need to understand this in the context of the near ancient, uh, you know, near east, the ancient near east. What was the issue? And I spoke recently about that. In fact, uh, we were, where are we now? We're in Washington. Um, (laughs) Yesterday, sorry. Yes, no, uh, this past weekend I was doing a seminar at the Silicon Valley for secular people at the Doubletree in downtown. And we had a number of secular people there as well as uh, people from other religions. What I mean by that is non-Christian religions like Muslims, New Age people, and so forth and so on. So that's, that's a major challenge because you don't have two clear fundamental assumptions, right? One is Scripture is the Word of God and Jesus is the Son of God. So those things. So the third topic was on violence in the Bible, which is one of the favorite topics brought about by the new atheists like Dawkins and Harris and people of that nature who are becoming militant, um, you know, atheists in the sense that saying the religion, religion is really bad for society. It's dangerous for society. And so I explained the reasons why the Canaanites were exterminated. A reason that most even Bible readers do not understand. 
we know that the limit of their sin had been reached, right? We know that Abraham was told it will be another 400 years and so forth and so on. But what we don't know is the extent of their wickedness. And I'll be as brief because I see some people that are a little younger, but, um, and I hope, I hope, you know, as, as the Italians would say, I hope you can capiche, you know, it's like, you know, get it? Are you getting it? Um, rain, rain was the equivalent in Baal, Anath, in a number of the, of the um, uh, local deities, what they did was the equivalent of spreading semen to the earth. It was raining semen to the earth, and that's really what it was. That's the reason why in all of these pagan societies it was necessary, according to their quote-unquote theology, to perform the wickedest sexual aberrations possible in public in order to stimulate the gods, in order to reign, uh, you know, from above, in order to produce fruit, okay? So, and I could tell you a lot of stuff that, you know, archaeology has unearthed and history has, and, and so no wonder God calls that abominations. That's really what it was. It was, it included incest, it included, um, you know, uh, bestiality in public, all of that was for the single purpose to stimulate the gods. So that's the concept, that's the Canaanite and pagan concept and biblical concept that is the people surrounding Israel, their concept of rain. That was, and so that's why it's important to see the context because when God speaks about rain, He also speaks about um, production. He also speaks about fruitfulness but obviously in a totally different way, right? Uh, you have the case of, of Elijah, it's just a typical case. That's why what was called down was fire, not rain. Uh, and, and that's why they did dastardly things to themselves in order to get the gods to do that and until Elijah says, you know, I'm just going to have a prayer about this, and I'm going to thank God. Notice that, notice that Elijah understood righteousness by faith thousands of years ago, because he simply thanked God for what he was about to do. He didn't beg God for it. He, he you know, he, he assumed this, you have set this up, and you're going to follow through with it, Okay? Rain is what the gods provide for the lives of their subjects. It is the most basic need. Imagine in agrarian societies, if you have no rain, what do you have? That's it. Soon life expires. Everything is based on, on rain, right? So metaphorically, what does rain imply? Joel 2 is a very helpful text. Joel 2 is a well-known text by most Adventists. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given you the former rain faithfully. This is the New King James. And He will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain. Now, in the New King James, it's translated the former rain faithfully. And you wonder, what does that mean? And when you check with other, uh, other uh, translations or versions, rather, you have different explanations. The former rain, because he is faithful, that's the NIV, that's, a, that's close, all right? 
And then the RSV and the NASB, which are a little more literalistic, say the former reign for your vindication. Now, that's quite a bit different than faithful or faithfully for your vindication. What does that mean? Or in, back to the King James, moderately. That's a totally different thing, right? So, what, what are we to understand? Or the ASV, in just measure, here's the, here's the, the original. In Hebrew, the word is more. The word early is yore. In some versions, some, some manuscripts have yore. In some manuscripts, evidently, have more. All right? Most of them have yore, all right, which is early, early rain, but they don't know what to do with that. Uh, but the other ones have more. More means teacher. Now, look at this uh, literalistic. He has given you the former teacher. When you go into the SDA Bible commentary, uh, they really have a very good insight. Uh, sometimes that's surprising, but, but you know, it, they really have good, done a good job on this one, better than any other commentary I've seen on that. This, this concept of teacher, more being teacher, is also another text in the Bible that, are, that is translated in the same way. So, basically, in what the Bible commentary says, is what, they, what it means is, He has given you the teacher of righteousness, and He will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain. In fact, the yore is, is the right word down here, whereas really this one should be more. So, the teacher of righteousness. Now, now you understand why some translations use the word vindication. In, one, some, in some faithfulness, it has to do, vindication has to do with righteousness. In, in faithfulness, you know, maybe that has to do with teaching and so forth and so on. Well, this concept of righteousness tied up with the rain, okay, the former and latter rain, keep that in mind, it's a very interesting concept is similar to other texts in Scripture. Isaiah 45, rain down you heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. So, what are the skies pouring down? They're not pouring down moisture or water. They're pouring down righteousness, right? Let the earth open, let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring, us to, spring up together. So, this is much more significant than water in, 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 in causing a physical result from the ground. Here's Hosea 10, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till He comes and rains righteousness on you. Isn't that interesting? And some of you know where I'm going with this, and some of you will figure it out in about 10 minutes. Here it is. The Bible uses that metaphor of rain as God's righteousness, and God's righteousness is a very encompassing term, right? God's righteousness in the Bible really means everything God has done for us. It's not simply the fact that He is right. That, obviously, it means that. It is everything God stands for, everything has, God does in the context of human beings and sinners, 
particularly, because that's what human beings are, basically, have been from, you know, shortly after the creation. So, God's righteousness raining down on sinners. This is a very important concept to keep in mind, okay, as we talk about this subject. All right, briefly, what is the early rain? Can somebody tell me? What's the early rain? The rain that falls early uh, to, to generate the seed, to make it sprout, okay? What else? Anything else? Is the early rain, biblically speaking? Okay, so I think I heard, I, I, I heard maybe part of it, but uh, uh, you talked about the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, uh, early church, the early New Testament church. That's right. Absolutely. In fact, in agrarian terms, the spring rains to start the growth of the summer crops or summer rains to start growth of fall, for instance. Of course, um, Israel is very much, how many of you have been to Israel? Israel is very much like California in terms of, uh, you know, it's desert, basically desert, but they've made it into a fairly productive land now. Um, and so, there's not a lot of rain during the summer at all. It, this is critical because without it, the seed will not sprout, and so nothing will have a chance to, to grow. Now, in spiritual terms, in spiritual terms, technically speaking, it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What's the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the initiatory uh, experience of a person who has come to Christ. Baptism in the Bible is always and exclusively used in terms of initiatory experiences. That's why when I do evangelism, I encourage elders and pastors not to be too tough on new believers. Because I say, biblically speaking, baptism is not their graduation. It's not that they have finished something. Baptism is their initiation. In other words, the full expectation is that they will now start really growing. Hmm? So, we need to allow them that growth. So, this is vital. John 3 speaks about the new birth experience and so forth. Um, the person will never live without the new birth, will never have abundant life, according to Jesus in John 10, unless you're born again, right? Clear enough. When is the early rain? Well, obviously at Pentecost, this is a historical objective aspect. There's two aspects in terms of rain. Uh, the historical objective and the personal subjective. And it's important to keep that in mind, okay? So Pentecost is the birth of the New Testament church, the start of a completely new era. We, we often fail to understand how how much of a major change that was for the first century church because we live in a totally different world. But for the Jew who, who knew himself to be the only person that could be saved, I mean, they've known that for generations. For a couple of millennia, they understood themselves to be the only ones who could possibly be saved. And if a pagan ha is saved, it's because he becomes a Jew. Jesus broke down that dividing wall that Paul speaks about, 
in the death of Jesus allowed for pagans to be treated in the same way that God treats Jews. That was such an inconceivable thing for the Jews. It was like, you've got to be kidding me. You mean God is actually welcoming everybody? What a concept. It, it was absolutely a radical, the most radical of all things. And so that, you know, pagans can be saved. The demonstration of the power of God in regular people, not simply in people like Elijah or Elisha or some of those major, you know, characters in the Old Testament. It's like God actually can work through regular people. Imagine fishermen Peter walking about in the shadow being cast over people, and they're, they're being healed. Now, that's, that was not a concept that, you know, nobody understood life to be that way before. So this is really a radical thing that has changed. A couple of statements to Ellen White, White, the outpouring of the Spirit in the days of the apostles was the beginning of the early or former reign, and glorious was the result. Now, it's interesting, she says, the beginning of, the beginning of the early. In other words, the implication is that the early reign would continue. It wasn't just then, okay? Um, in page 48 of the Acts of the Apostles, we have a quick description of the results of that work of the Spirit then. What was the result of the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? The glad tidings of a risen Savior were carried to the uttermost part of the inhabited world. Imagine, I just want you to imagine, how many are there here? There are maybe a hundred people or maybe less. But imagine this place being the equivalent of the upper room with 120 people. And we get a text from God that says, you're responsible. Nobody else is going to do this. Nobody else knows about this. Nobody else has a clue about this. And you're responsible for the next 7 billion people. That was the Great Commission for those people in the upper room. First, Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria. That, that already... I mean, Jerusalem was bad enough. They were all Galileans. They were not Jerusalemites. They were not Judeans. These people spoke with a different accent, had different customs. They were looked down upon by the people in Jerusalem. And God says, I don't want you to leave the lion's den. I want you to start right here. And then Judea. And then Samaria. The very people you wanted to ask God to send fire from heaven to burn. Those are the very people I want you to reach. And then the ends of the world means the, the, the Gentile world. Wow. So, the uttermost parts of the inhabited world, the disciples proclaimed the message of redeeming grace. Hearts yielded to the power of this message. I like the wording, yielded. It's not like they were persuaded. They yielded. This was not argumentation. This was a force of love. They yielded. Hmm? The church beheld converts flocking to her from all directions. Do we have people flocking to our churches? Think about it. What's the flocking coming from? You know, you have these visions of little of, of, of sheep all together just moving along, you know, wanting to, you know, going in one direction. That's, the, that's what pagans were doing and what Jews were doing. 
coming to the churches of Christians or the house churches of Christians. Backsliders were reconverted. Sinners united with believers and seeking the pearl of great price. In other words, before they were baptized, before they, they made a confession of faith to be Christians, they were already engaged in the witnessing process that Christians were involved in. And then, some who had been the bitterest opponents of the gospel became its champions. So the personal subjective aspect is that new birth, accepting the goodness and person of Jesus in the heart, the start of a new life in Christ, the demonstration of the power of God in a person's life, which is really victory over sin. It's, it's really having, it's being what, uh, it's, it's living Paul's expression in Philippians 3 of the life of the resurrection, the church of the resurrection. What is the church of the resurrection? It's a church that lives in the victory provided by Jesus Christ. That's, that's also a concept that, you know, human beings have a hard time uh, understanding. But we'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. What is the latter rain then? The latter rain ripens the earth's ha- harvest, which is the world. She says that in Last Day Events 183. The earth's harvest. And then she says, and it prepares the church. So as these two fossae, I'm moving fast, I know, but we got a lot to cover in a very short time. So... What she says is that the latter rain will impact the world, right? The harvest, the earth's harvest. And the church prepares the church for the coming of Jesus, okay? Um, The latter rain represents the completion of the work of God's grace in the soul. So it's a maturing process uh, in the personal subjective uh, continuum. And then three, three other things. She says, it will prepare the church for the coming of the Son of Man. I refer to that already. It will give power to the loud voice of the third angel. What's the loud voice of the third angel? That's the latter rain. That, the loud voice is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in great power. That's why the voice is loud. Hmm? that it's loud enough that it's going to really reach. It's going to really get through out there. See, right now, we're not very loud. A few people are. And by that, I don't mean that pejoratively. I mean that in the best sense, the biblical sense of the word, there are people whom God is using for powerful work. Many of them are missionaries or people who live in other parts of the world who are living by faith absolutely, just trusting in God completely. But in general, the church in general is not um, experiencing the loud cry. And I think that's pretty self-evident. Yes? I'm still not clear on part three. Why is What's the big, uh, the number three, the saints to stand, it prepares the saints to stand to the period when the seven last plagues shall be poured out. You don't understand that statement because you're saying that the probation is done by the time the seven last plagues come. Yes. Um, and so it, um, oh, I see, because you, you, you would say, what's the point? Yeah, but remember that, that um, she also has other statements about the fact that people, 
the, the blast plagues will be so fearsome and so um, um, earth-shaking that, that at the sensory level, we're going to be tempted to fear that and to recoil from that and to doubt even our own salvation in the process, okay? One thing is, is, this, is what surrounds you. Something else is what you know. So this is preparing you to face that in spite of the fact that surrounds you, of, of the things that surround you. What is the message of the latter rain? Now let's get to, to something uh, that is more critical then. Um, listen to this statement. This is a well-known statement from Testimonies to Ministers. The Lord in His great mercy sent a most precious message to His people through Elders Wagner and Jones. This message was to bring more prominently before the world the uplifted Savior. Interesting that that message is supposed to be brought before the world. But as far as we understand history to work out, it was not mostly before the world. It was mostly before the church, right? Minneapolis, 1888. And it didn't go much beyond that. Yes, there were some uh, revivals in the 90s as a result of that in 91, 93, 95, particularly like in Battle Creek and other places. But it impacted Adventists. The, the quick conclusion to that is that, that we really squelched it, that we didn't allow it to develop to the level that it needed to be developed to get to the world because God needed to begin with His own people, right? In, in, in not even that. Well, well, we'll see that. The sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. Many had lost sight of Jesus. She's speaking about church members. They needed to have their eyes directed to His divine person, His merits, and His changeless love for the human family. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. Did you get that? The Sabbath is a message the world needs to hear. The state of the dead is a message the world needs to hear. The, you know, understanding Revelation 13 is a message the world needs to hear. The three angels' messages is, the world, is what the world needs to hear. But of all of those things, what needs to tower above all of that is this, is Jesus, His changeless love for the human family. That is what He's commanded to be given to the world. Remember, a, there are four commission statements in the Bible, three in the Gospels, one in the book of Acts, all mentioned by Jesus. And the first one he mentioned is the night of his resurrection in, 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 in uh, Luke 24. And what did he say? He said to them, you need to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Now, he doesn't say, as long as they confess, no, that is the power of the gospel. You need to proclaim forgiveness of sins. Regardless of how they respond, you need to let them know that God has already made that statement. He has already taken that role, that step. He has already forgiven sinners. Yes. Yes, uh, there's one more slide. Here it is. It is the third angel's message. What's the third angel's message? That's about the beast, right? And that's about not worshiping the beast. 
And yet, she says, it is the third angel's message which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice. Here it is, the connection. And attended with the outpouring of His Spirit in a large measure. So, the, somehow, talking about prophecy, talking about prophecy, well endued with the deep love of Jesus in your heart, bathed with the Holy Spirit, will really, is exactly what the world needs to hear. And that, and that alone, is what's going to have the power to melt hearts. In the early church, in the early New Testament church, Ellen White has a statement or two, I don't know if I have it here, maybe I have it later, I can't remember, um, where she says that the early church, a thousand were converted because the words the disciples spoke and the prayers they, they prayed were so Jesus-filled, so Spirit-filled, that hearts melted, I quote now, hearts melted. It's an interesting choice of a verb. Hearts melted. When something melts, it's because it cannot resist the heat. Right? It's an outsized force that will, ch will change your entire <clears throat> whatever you are. In short, the message was the gospel of salvation. Let's look at a few texts, okay? For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and after that He has seen by over five hundred brethren at once, then at last of all He was seen by me also as by one uh, born out of due time. Those five verses, actually four, the last part of it is something that Paul added, it was it is it is known as the first Christian confession. In other words, these four verses are the verses that most that Christians running around in the fifties and sixties and seventies and so forth all over the Roman Empire repeated to themselves. This is what we are all about. This was the this was their their statement of identity. This is what Christianity is about. This is all the sermons in one. And the two things that, that are highlighted is the fact that Jesus died for our sins and that Jesus rose from the dead. Because that, you know, who can rise from the dead? The Christians made the point about the resurrection of Jesus as the proof of the efficacy of Jesus on behalf of sinners. That is the proof that, that God was with him in that he actually beat the devil. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. So salvation implies power, power of God, for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For everyone who believes. So here's, an, here's a, 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 the power of God to salvation, but it is not effectuated until somebody believes, Right? The power of God is there. It is totally available. It is ready. There's nothing that God needs to do. He's already done it. It's now up to anyone to say yes to, you know, I believe you have done it. 
Here's the power of the, after the descent of the Holy Spirit. Oh, yeah, here's that uh, statement. The disciples were so filled for, for love for him, with love for him, and for those for whom he died, the hearts were melted by the words they spoke and the prayers they offered. Can you imagine that? Does that happen in our churches today? They spoke in the power of the Spirit, and under the influence of that power, thousands were converted. Thousands were converted. Here, you want to know the secret to church growth? Here's the secret to church growth. And I teach church growth at master and doctoral levels, and I've been teaching pastors for over 20 years, and I write on this stuff, but the bottom line secret to church growth is really understanding the love of Jesus. That's the bottom line. If I really understand the love of Jesus, if I really understand what God is like, what He has done, to the level that it is my privilege to know it, and I respond to that, that alone is the most powerful thing. Forget about methodology and about training and all of that stuff. That is superfluous. That is actually secondary. All of those things can help always a little bit here and there. But the core of it is, is you know, if you're, full, it's, if you're full of Jesus, it'll show. You know how that, uh, there was a, a grandmother attending church with her granddaughter, and she was drawing while grandma was listening to a preacher. And, uh, but she was listening, the little girl was listening too, and every once in a while she would poke up, you know, lift her head up and ask a question of grandma, and one of them was, did the preacher say that God is bigger than us? And, and grandma says, of course, honey, he's bigger than us, much bigger than us. He's bigger as the universe, you know, so forth and so on. And then a few minutes later, she kept drawing. A few minutes later, she said, did your preacher say that God lives in us? And she says, yes, he lives in our hearts. And then she thought, logic, says, if God lives in us and he is bigger than us, shouldn't some of him show through? Shouldn't some of him show through? 1 Timothy 4, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now notice that wording. He is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. He doesn't say He is the Savior of those who believe. He says He is the Savior of all men. The wickedest murderer, the, the most acerbic atheist, is also, has also Jesus Christ as his Savior. But the reason it says, especially for those who believe, is because the, only those who believe actually can benefit or appropriate the, the benefits of that salvation. But salvation is there. Salvation is provided. Salvation is guaranteed. These things command I and teach, he says to Timothy. Uh, or in 2 Timothy, God who has saved us, not who will save us. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. Before time began. Why does he say before time began? How could, it, how could we say that God saved us before time began? Plan to create 
Right, because the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. So the, the, the plan of salvation was already in place. The conviction and decisions about saving men, potential sinners, even before they were sinners, potential sinners, that was established. That is the goodness of God. He did not shift that, that plan. He did not say, you know, I hope that... He, he, he just said, I'm giving myself for them, period. But has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord Jesus, of our Savior Jesus Christ. Now we see it. Now we see this great love of God, invisible God. We now see it in a human being. Wow. Who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He did this. He has abolished death. He brought life. He brought immortality to light. He has done these things. Or in John 12, I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, notice that. Notice what it says next. I do not judge him. In other words, what Jesus says, look, I didn't come here to condemn people. And he says that in the famous John 3, 17, actually. Uh, he says, I came here to save people. That's really my role. That's what God's role is. Their response will determine whether or not the next step takes place. But what I'm about and what I expect and what I plan for is for all to be saved. Actually, do you know what a universalist is? A universalist is somebody who believes that God loves everybody so much that he will not keep anybody outside of salvation. The Bible teaches something else, right? The Bible doesn't teach that everybody will be saved. The Bible teaches that actually a minority will be saved, that more will not be saved than will be saved, right? But the greatest universalist is God himself because God actually does mean to save every person. Everything he has done is to save every person human being that has ever lived. If anybody is not, it's not because of God. So, uh, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words as that which judges him, the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last days. And that's why we know it from Ellen White that um, in the last days, even Satan will recognize you, you're judging correctly. And um, I've talked with a couple of theologians about this. My theory is that, you know, we believe the Bible teaching on annihilation at the end of the thousand years. But some people, Ellen White says, some people will be destroyed faster than others. Be destroyed faster than others. And I believe that that has to do with their, their recognition, their yieldedness to say, you were right all along. I have no excuse. I have no excuse. In Romans 6 we read, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. 
But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Now, explain that text to me. This is one of those texts that is hardly ever understood by any reader of the Bible. What does it mean? Reckon yourselves to be dead to indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to reckon? Is that just a southern word? You know, I reckon that, you know. What's reckon? Consider. Consider? I'm not going there. I'm not going there? What do you mean I'm not going there? Okay, so staying away from temptation. Mm, reckon yourselves to be dead. I'm not sure if it means exactly that because staying away from, the, to, from temptation may imply effort. It may imply uh, or ability. What about acknowledge? Acknowledge, conclude. It's a done deal. Okay, so reckon, it's an interesting, you know, Anglo-Saxon word that means count it, expect it, consider it this way. This is the fact. In other words, what it really means is this single word is more real than your circumstances. And what are our circumstances? Now think about it. How many times do we Christians reckon ourselves to be dead to sin? Many times we don't, right? Why? Because we see ourselves fall over and over, because we are very conscious of our mistakes, and we're conscious of our selfishness, and the devil makes sure that you remember those things. That's the genius of Scripture. That's the genius of the Christian walk. The Christian religion is wholly, entirely different than anything else. Every other religion. But, you know, I teach this stuff in apologetics. Buddhism, uh, you know, Hinduism, all of the other stuff, all of the other religions are man-made to the core. And they're basically one concept. And that concept is... Yes, I need to get out of my present situation, whether it is suffering in the case of Buddhism, you know, you know, whether it's becoming righteous because I'm not in the case of you know, Islam, whatever it is, I need to get out of my present situation. And the way to get out is by doing this or doing that or knowing this or knowing that. It's still man-based. It's, it's me managing to figure it out. The Christian religion is completely different than that because it says everything around you is secondary to the reality of knowing what God says. When you read something, when you, when you read the words, when you understand what God says, that needs to become your reality. That is your reality regarding... I, I feel selfish. I feel angry. The moment I feel angry, the Bible tells me, reckon yourself to be dead and dead to sin. And I don't feel dead to sin. I feel angry. And that's very much self-alive, right? That's when that text, that statement from Ellen White comes in handy that says, talk faith until you have faith. 
talk faith until you have faith. In other words, focus on the truth. These are words of truth. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Okay, Lord, I am dead to sin. I don't feel dead to sin, but I'm dead to sin because you say so. I'm dead to sin because you say so. I'm not dead to sin, but I'm dead to sin because you say so. That is what begins real change. You know, and anybody, no wonder they, you know, I mean, people looking around like say, what in the world? But that's allowing the Word of God, the words of God, what God, how God perceives reality to dictate our own perception of reality. Exactly. Because I believe it so. Yes. But now, again, that, that can be tricky too because belief can also be man-made if you're not careful. In other words, you, you can tell yourself you need to believe and you must, you know, that, a lot of Christians think of it that way. They read um, Mark eleven twenty four, for instance, you know, for all the things you pray for and believe, you know, you'll have them, etc. And so they, they think they have to muster up this kind of thing. Belief is not mustering up anything. Belief is simply saying yes to whatever he says. Yes. And that settles it even even if I don't feel it is settled. But I choose to believe it is settled. I believe, help my unbelief. That's right. In fact, that miracle, you know, uh, um, our brother here made reference to that father who brought the demon-possessed young man, right? That was after the, uh, the morning after the transfiguration, right? And Jesus was looking, he says, you know, oh, unbelieving generation, you know, how long shall I be with you? And, and he allowed for this demon to, you know, do his histrionics, which is atypical from what he used to do, what he always does with, with demon possession, right? He, you know, he cast him back and forth and foamed at the mouth and asked questions, how long has it, and you say, why, why are you doing this? Because he was waiting for one in that crowd, one, one person in that crowd to express belief that God can actually take care of this. And the only one that did, because it wasn't the other nine disciples, their faith was, you know, they were downcast because they, they, they practiced, uh, what's the fake of uh, belief? Um, presumption. They, they used presumption. We've done this before and it didn't happen right? And the scribes were critical, and and the multitude was saying, well, maybe this demon is too big for Jesus. It's a fascinating story, until finally the father says, I believe, I believe. You know what he said in verse 24? He didn't say, I believe so much, I believe. He said, I believe you believe, based on what what we read in verses 23. 2 and 23, because Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes, he says, right? 
And so the father responds to the fact that obviously you believe. So I believe. I believe you believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, I'm not even quite sure. I, but, but what is clear to me is that you believe. And that alone was enough. Philippians 3. What things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. Now, he can say that with much more conviction than any of us can. Why? Because he was a top of the, you know, Line, he was a, a top notch Pharisee. They worked on self righteousness. They, they, that, that was their thing. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's the power of his resurrection? It's to, to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to Christ, is to actually believe the Bible. When the Bible says, um, give thanks for everything, that means give thanks for everything. So, yes, last night, we had 35 minutes layover in, in Salt Lake City. We left Minneapolis 45 minutes late. Do the math. And then, in transit, we had contrary winds. So we got to Salt Lake City about an hour late. I, I had to admit, you know, I, I, I very much dislike it when everybody in the airline keeps assuring you, oh, you'll be fine, oh, I'm sure, you know, you'll have 20 minutes and stuff. I know better, you know, one day I'm going to tell them, I fly a lot more than you do, you know, that, <laughs> because that's true. You know, the gate agents, they don't fly that much, they, just, they live there. So, um, and I'll tell you, that never happens. You know, when, whenever, whatever you're saying just does not happen. And so, just tell it to me straight. Um, well, anyway, so we landed, and I called a special number that frequent flyers can call about, you know, how to solve that situation. And they even assured me, yeah, it's too late. He says, they... They were delayed about 45 minutes, but they're leaving now. Okay? They're leaving now. Now, I have been praying, and I said, Lord, you call us to do this. If we fail to make the transfer, we're not going to make the seminar this morning. And a number of other issues. So, it's in your hands. You, you, you take care of this thing. Now, I have to admit that there were moments in which I took it on my own and I worried. You know why it says worry is blind? Well, I, I blinded, you know. I, I worried. But then I would surrender again and I said, you know, it's, it's your business. So you take care of it. So as soon as we got out, we ran to the other gate just in case everybody else was wrong. And we made the plane. They were just boarding. They had been delayed that much more. It just seemed like it was just for us. So it's not, it's not living 
based on your circumstances. What was my circumstance? I'm late, I'm worried about that, all the problems this will cause, I'm fretting about that. God says, no, live by faith. He says, this is, your life is in God's hands. You can trust Him. He has done it all. Has He not foreseen this? Has He not taken care of this? Can He not delay a plane? Can He not convince it? Can He not make things happen? Can He not take it, you know, and I started imagining other scenarios, you know, maybe going on Alaska Airlines or maybe something, or maybe, maybe the whole thing here being shut down for half a day. <laughs> Can God not do that? And, and that's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you need to live in the reality that God lives. That's the power of the resurrection. Not based on your circumstances. And the devil is very, very, very good at that. Especially today, we live in a very sensory-based society that, you know, I... One example I always give is journalists. When I came to this country 40 years ago, journalists used to ask people, what do you think about something? Or what's your opinion about something? Nobody asks that anymore. How do you feel? Even, even serious questions. How do you feel? Because that's our, that's our society. We're a feeling-based society. Several implications. Jesus redeemed us before we were born. So in, in, in real, it's, 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 it's a true statement to say, I was saved before I, I even showed up. The death of Christ is not merely for believers, but for all sinners. Pardon is for all the world. Pardon is universal. Everybody has been forgiven. Now, I know that sounds universalist. But while the effectiveness of this pardon is for those who believe, because God will not force somebody who has been saved to be saved. This is astonishing. I mean, it's astonishing if the world only knew and understood that. Uh, life in Christ equals a life of resurrection. And the key to victory is the choice to believe. It is not to have faith. It's simply to exercise it. It is not how much faith do I have based, you know, compared to my brother Paul. It is, it is what do I do with the faith that God gave me? Do I exercise? And that has to do with choice. And that has nothing to do with willpower. And it has nothing to do with skill or ability. It doesn't have anything to do with spiritual depth or understanding. It simply has to do with I choose to believe this based on what I see in the word, regardless. Jesus saved all sinners at the cross. If this is understood and accepted, the sinner then benefits from God's salvation. We were already born forgiven. This is why it is called the good news. People who understand this, there's a whole, it's like, it's, it's like being in a stadium with, where the, the roof finally it, it opens and you finally see the sky. You see, uh, Herb Douglas came up with this concept, and I think he's right. Every truth of Scripture should be uh, understood elliptically instead of circular because there are points in tension. The issue of salvation, for example, 
you have justification and you have sanctification. Justification is the legal aspect of it. It's being declared righteous now in spite of your life. And then sanctification is making you righteous. It's a process of a lifetime that actually makes you more and more in the image of God, right? But these two are naturally in tension. If you focus too much on one, you neglect the other one, and you have a lopsided understanding of what the Bible says regarding uh, salvation. If you have too much emphasis on one and then not enough on the other, then you're, you're wrong. In the history of theology over the last 2,000 years is a history of reactions. For instance, um, well, here's an example. An example, a marriage is between a husband and a wife. One is not the total truth about marriage. Humans are men and women. The overemphasis on one distorts the value of the other. As simple as that. Okay? So, the medieval church said salvation is by sacraments. Salvation is obtained by sacraments. It is the, it is the sacraments. Of the, if you do this, if you confess, if you go to Mass, if you, you know, do this, then salvation is yours. Well, what does this lead to? This leads to legalism, right? Because, and this is really, this is the Christian version of all of the other religions, all of, all of the other non-Christian religions, which is, I've, if I do a few things, I appease my conscience, and God must be right with me, even though I don't feel that this case, but He must be right with me. So, there came the magisterial reformers, Luther and Calvin. And Luther and Calvin says, nope, that's bunk. And he says, and they went the opposite way. They went to the other side, the other ditch. And they said, salvation is without works. And they emphasized that because they reacted to the medieval church. But that's not entirely true either. Because when you really think about that and you push it to the logical extent, you end up with cheap grace. And that's why you must have a doctrine called predestination. Because then if, if I have nothing to do with my salvation, then God is actually picking and choosing who He's going to save. And so this was reacted to a couple hundred years later with Wesley and Arminius and so forth. And they, and they modified that. They adjusted that. They didn't go as far into the ditch, but they went farther than they needed to go, again, because that's the history of theology. And they said salvation calls for human response. And so the emphasis now, whereas the emphasis in Catholicism was salvation through the church, I mean sanctification through the church, and the emphasis from the reformers was justification, legal forensic justification, you know, Luther and Calvin. Now this is back to sanctification again. In other words, I need to see that something happens in my life. And I respond, and, and faith was, but, but it went a little too far, because that leads to perfectionism, because it's, it's an over-preoccupation on how I'm doing. And that is, that is typically the bigger disease among Adventists. We, we come from that kind of theological uh, background. But Adventism, true and true, discovered it, that this really works together. Salvation is by God's works. It's not, it's not outside of works. It is works, but it's the works of God. But it is works. And it's the first 
denomination, the first group of people in the history of theology that has really gotten it together. And you know who really got it together? This little lady did. Well, the other fellows also contributed to that, but she has the clearest uh, statements of that. And that is grace at work. And that is what salvation is about. This whole scope of salvation, grace and mercy, forgiveness, grace and law and justice, forgiveness and empowerment, justification, sanctification, a fact accomplished in the past, a process at work in the present, the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, right? Not just thank you for what you did for me 2,000 years, thank you for your willingness to live in me today, is Savior as well as Lord, the fruit of the Spirit as well as the gifts of the Spirit. The whole encompassing picture. Adventism was the only one that brought this, this together, okay? And that is the power of God. So the last question, when is the latter? No, the last two questions. And I probably have run out of time, right? No, I still have 10 minutes, right? Now, some people th think that you cannot, it says, Ellen White says not to set time regarding the latter rain. But let's read this in context, because that's even one of the categories in, in Last Day Events, in the book, in the compilation Last Day Events. I have no specific time of which, of which to speak when the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will take place. My message is that our only safety is in being ready for the heavenly refreshing, having our lamps trimmed and burning. You read this and you conclude, okay, so she doesn't know. This is March 29, 1892 in Review and Herald. One week before, she said this, one week before. The third angel's message is a long thing, so I'm summarizing. The third angel's message is swelling into a loud cry now. Well, if it's swelling into a loud cry now, then we cannot say we don't know when that's happening. It's happening now. Don't neglect the present duty in hopes of waiting for the greatest blessing at some future time. The assumption is, it's now, you know, the present time is the one you need to, to think about. And then she emphasizes and emphasizes the fact that today God is at work and today we need to respond to Him, etc., etc. So this really brings balance to that. In 1884, she says, it is Satan's object now, 1884, to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time, a spurious loud cry, you know, a fake spiritual revival, that the real message may not have its effect when it does come. So, according to this statement, she's still expecting that, right? When it does come. This is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth will be lightened with the glory of God. That's a reference to Revelation 18, you know, the fourth angel. Sure enough, four years later, she says, soon will come. Four years later, in Minneapolis at the General Conference, just a few weeks before that, she wrote, we are impressed that this gathering will be the most important meeting you have ever attended. She wrote to the delegates. You should plead to God for His Spirit to descend upon you as it came upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And then, you know, it was famous because A.T. Jones and, 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 and Wagner spoke about the cross and really brought light to this, these two young bucks from California. She said, in reference to their uh, lectures, 
Christ was lifted up as never before in our history. And that includes 1844, okay? When Brother Wagner brought out these ideas in Minneapolis, it was the first clear teaching on this subject from any human lips I had heard, excepting the conversations between myself and my husband. I have said to myself, it is because God has presented it to me in vision that I see it so clearly. And they cannot see it because they have never had it presented to them as I have. And when another presented it, every fiber in my heart said, Amen. So this is a woman who had um, supernatural revelation about this and said, this fits with what I've seen, with what I understand from God, right? This, this, this is really, this is, this is the right thing. And everything in her said, amen. But you know what? She's probably the only one in that there were 90 delegates. She was probably the only one that got it. Why? Why is it so difficult to get what we just read in Scripture? Why is it so difficult to believe that God has actually saved us already? In that, in that our joyous opportunities to simply respond with gratefulness and say, thank you, Jesus, for everything you've done. Instead of worry about where I lack and where I'm coming short and, what, you know, and all of these other things. Why? Because the devil will, will make us keep focusing on ourselves. Even for good things. To improve to become more like Jesus, to be better persons. And so we still focus on ourselves. Instead of, as Hezekiah says, our eyes are upon you. Fix, doesn't Paul say that in, in Hebrews? Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. This is, this is the only way the devil is going to be defeated, if we just refuse time and time again to say, I'm not going to listen to you even though you're right about me. I'm just not going to... I'm going to listen to Jesus, even though what He says doesn't seem to be right about me. Because He said so. Because He, he has defined reality. Because He thinks this way to me. It is when you really think, when you really understand how much God really loves you, it just breaks you through and through. And you, and you cast yourself away and you say... I don't deserve another look by God. I don't deserve a single thing. I am a living abomination, and yet you love me, and you save me, and you, and you think of me so much better than I could ever possibly think of myself or I ever thought of anybody else. How could it be? It just, it just, it just boggles the mind. But that is what we need to understand and process, and that is the power of the gospel. There's the power of the gospel. Uh, what he said, by the righteousness of one, who, the one, uh, of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. He was commenting on, on Romans 5, 12 to 19. There is no exception here. As the condemnation came upon all, so the justification comes upon all. Christ has tasted death for every man. He has given himself for all. Nay, he has given himself to every man. Not for, to also. 
The free gift has come upon all. The fact that it is a free gift is evidence that there is no exception. If it came upon only those who have some special qualification, such as faith, then it would not be a free gift. No wonder they call it good news. It is overwhelmingly good news. It is, it is logic-defying good news. The time of test is just upon us. For the loud cry of the third angel has already begun, she wrote in 1892. Already begun in reference to 1888. So when? It started in 1888. She, she pigeonholes that. The revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning redeeming, even though most people missed it. Um, there is much light yet to, be sh to shine forth from the law of God and the gospel of righteousness. This message understood in, the true, in its true character and proclaimed in the Spirit will lighten the earth with glory, Revelation 18. This closing work will be attended with a power that will send the rays of the Son of Righteousness unto all the highways and byways of life. That's a Luke 14, right? That parable that, you know, go out there and highways and Bibles, get everybody. My own, those who have invited have decided not to come, but others compel them. <clears throat> the compelling, how does the compelling come? It is being compelled by the love of God. It is what she said regarding the early church, that the words and the prayers they said melted hearts. Why has the latter rain not caused the loudest possible cry? so far. Now, brethren, we want to have the simplicity of Christ. I know that He has a blessing for us. He had it at Minneapolis, and He had it for us at the time of the general conference here. Uh, I think she refers to 1890, uh, 1889, uh, but there was no reception. The majority of people just, they took it, 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 it two reactions primarily. A few, a very few, got it. But most of the reactions were either, we already know this, but kept it at an intellectual level. Or they said, um, that cannot be quite true. Because they were still too Armenian in their response. They, they were still too, it's like, you know, God has done it all. That sounds too Lutheran. That, that's, that's scary. That's like, you know, we're going to go on the deep end. Is, are we going to end up with cheap graves this way? And so they, they just didn't trust it. The true religion, the only religion of the Bible that teaches forgiveness only through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior that advocates righteousness by the faith of the Son of God has been slighted, spoken against, ridiculed and rejected. It has been denounced as leading to enthusiasm and fanaticism. But it is the life of Jesus Christ in the soul. It is the life of Jesus Christ in the soul. It is the active principle of love imparted by the Holy Spirit that alone will make the soul fruitful until good works. The love of Christ is the force and power of every message for God that ever fell from human lips. That still remains the case. And so, this is what's left for us to do. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. That's the time we've been living for the last 135 years. 125 years or so. 
We have been living in the time of the latter rain. But it has not swelled into a loud cry because there has not been a critical mass of saved people who have known that they are saved. Who have understood and process and say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. I am yours. I mean, it, that's, that's the thing. It's impossible to know the love of God and remain selfish. You can't. You, you, you can't do that. Either, I mean, you can, you can try to balance that, but eventually you're going to give in. You're going to surrender all and say, you have it all. Or you're going to take it all and reject them. So we've had the solution for the longest time. I think this is the key thing, and uh, we should probably think on these things a little more. What is the role? You know, it goes back to that simple statement in Steps to Christ 47, where she speaks about the power of choice, the power of the will. And the power of the will is not willpower. The power of the will is not willpower. Some people, by temperament, have more willpower than other people. Okay? They're stronger. Their minds, you know, they go for it. That's not what it's talking about. It's the power of choice. It's the, will, it's, it's the fact that all of us have choice. And my choice is to simply say yes to everything God has said. So when I come to it, I say, I choose to believe it, even though... I'm not sure I would believe it, even though it doesn't feel that way, even though today I'm not likely to believe it more than yesterday. And so when those thoughts come to my mind, I say, get thee behind me, Satan. I am going to choose to believe these words regardless of my circumstances. And I think that's the secret because that elevates us out of ourselves into the realm of Christ, into what God, where God is at work. In a life of faith is a life of victory. Isn't that what John says? You know, your victory is, you know, 1 John, what is it? 1 John 4, 7 or so? Is your faith. A faith that was given to us by God to begin with. We don't generate faith. We can only practice it. We can only exercise that. Thank you for your attention. Uh, I'll remain here if anybody wants to talk a little bit more uh, or have any questions. I'm sorry for going at uh, quite a speed to try to cover this. Why don't we bow our heads, and I'd like to have a, maybe a minute of silent prayer, and then, and then I'll, close, I'll close with prayer. Dear loving Father, you are a great God. You are unlike any other. You love us from times immemorial. You have loved us with an everlasting love. You're a long-suffering God. You suffer long for us. You're kind-hearted, you're good, you're holy. And in spite of that, you have 
chosen to save that which so naturally uh, you would so naturally reject because your love for us is more overwhelming, more overpowering than anything else because you are love. You are love. You cannot help yourself. And oh God, what a, what a lofty thought. And thank you for Jesus who came to show us what the love of the Father was like, what the plans of God were like, Thank you that Jesus came to show us what it's like to live by faith and not by sight. To rely wholly on the Father by the Holy Spirit. To trust in Him. To wake up morning by morning. To listen to God as a disciple, as a learner. To make no judgment on His own. Even though He was tempted both as a human to become more human and been tempted as a, as, as a divine being to rely on his divinity. He covered all the bases. Jesus, you covered all the bases. You did everything for us. And you saved us. You eternally saved us. You saved us. You did this work for us. You're waiting for us to respond. That's all. To respond to the marvelous work of God. Oh, Father, I pray... May your Holy Spirit lead us in our devotions, in our study of the Word, in our praying, in our claiming promises to bank on you, to reckon ourselves unto you, to believe in you, to consider the words of Scripture to be more clear, more vital, more sure, more real than our circumstances, than our feelings, than our fears. Lead us to exercise the proper choices every time. Lead us to choose you in spite of the fact that we may not want to know you at a given moment. Lead us to say, I want to know you even when I don't want to know you. Lead us to pray the prayer that says, lead me to a great hunger for you even though right now I want to watch a movie even though right now I want to walk away from you, even though right now I want to rely on my own, my own ideas. Create in us, O oh Lord, a hunger for you that will not be satisfied with anything less than you. And help us, above all, to believe in you. That's what you said in John 6. The work of God is that you believe that you believe in Him, that, you, that we believe in who has died and who has done it all for us. And as we practice that faith, we will be empowered to become more and more like Jesus and like the disciples of old, be able to speak and pray and work in such a way that hearts all around us will melt by the power of salvation the power of God, because they'll say, clearly, there's something different activating your life. Oh, Father, may you bring about the loud cry. May you bring about the latter rain. May you, may you grow a, uh, a critical mass of your followers to 
choose to trust you on a day-to-day basis. May we refuse to be discouraged by looking at us. And when we look at us, remind us, our eyes are not set on us, they're set on Jesus. Remind us about our north. Remind us what makes things happen. Remind us who is able to do it all. Thank you, Jesus, because you're all sufficient to every one of us sinners, to every one of us faulty, falling short of the glory of God, but whom you love with an everlasting love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.